The words that I read to you a few moments ago are the opening words of the Gospel of John, and they declare the most glorious and the most profound truths found anywhere in the Bible. Because in these words, the Apostle John tells us that Almighty God, the creator of the universe, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and for a few brief years, he dwelt among us, living in the small Middle Eastern nation of Israel in the first century. Now, that happened over 2,000 years ago. You know that. It's become then a custom all around the world, as you know, to celebrate the birth of Christ. Today, the Sunday before Christmas, there will be thousands of pastors just like myself who will be preaching to their people. Most of them will preach either from Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel accounts, the story of Christ coming into this world as a little baby born in Bethlehem. And tomorrow, Christmas Day, many will gather together with family, with friends, to exchange gifts, to enjoy food, to enjoy fellowship together. Generally speaking, in our culture, the Christmas season is a really, really nice time. In fact, as the song tells us, it's the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, it's such a nice time, it's such a wonderful time of the year, that it's very common during the holiday season to hear people speak of what's known as the spirit of Christmas. You can often hear these words or words to that effect on any Hallmark movie this time of the year, the spirit of Christmas. And by the spirit of Christmas, they mean that indefinable attitude that people have this time of the year, unlike any other season of the year, that results in folks being just a little more considerate of one another, a little more friendly, a little kinder than usual. It's the spirit of Christmas that encourages people to go out of their way to do something special for others, like give end-of-the-year bonuses and gifts that express love. It's that Christmas spirit that puts people in the mood to enjoy the holidays with singing, with gift exchanging, with being with loved ones, with attending parties, putting up special lights, decorations, both inside and outside of the house. And all these nice activities, and they are very nice activities, they fall under the category of the Christmas spirit. But this morning, I want us to consider not how our culture today reacts to Christmas, but I want us to see the true spirit of Christmas, the real spirit of Christmas as revealed in the New Testament. In other words, I want us to see what the Bible says about how the people who were living during the time of Jesus, those who had the opportunity to see God in human flesh, I want us to see how they reacted to his coming into the world. So what I want us to discover this morning is the real spirit of Christmas, meaning the true attitude of those people who were alive when Jesus walked on this earth. I want us to see how they felt about God becoming a man. Did it motivate them to be a little bit kinder and gentler? Did it move them to be more giving, more thoughtful, more sensitive to others? The answer is no, not at all. The New Testament presents to us a very different picture of the spirit of Christmas than the one that's experienced by most people today. See, most of the people of Christ's day, they rejected him. They despised him for claiming that he was God. And though over 2,000 years have passed since Christ was born, most people today have the very same reactions to Jesus Christ. 
Behind the pleasant singing about Christ's birth, the merriment of the season, the pretty lights, and the efforts made to be nicer during the holidays, the Bible reveals that most people have a very hateful attitude about God being born as a man. And one of the places in the Bible where we learn this is the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, which is interesting, interesting because John's Gospel doesn't tell us any of the details about the birth of Christ. None whatsoever. In fact, John doesn't even record the account of Christ's birth. But what he does tell us is that people in the first century, how they reacted What people in the first century, those who saw him, those who heard him, what they thought about him coming into the world. And by application, we learn what people today really, really think about Christ coming into the world. See, John, like no other gospel writer, reveals the real spirit of Christmas. Now, in order to understand John's message about Christ coming into the world and the people's reaction to his coming, we need to first know something of the unique message of the Gospel of John. You see, the New Testament contains four accounts of the life of Christ, written by four different divinely inspired writers. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and then there's John. So, The question that people often have is why four gospel accounts? Why not one grand biographical sketch of the life of Jesus? Well, the answer is that when God inspired these men, controlled these men, dominated these men to write about Christ's earthly ministry, his purpose wasn't to give us a broad general life history of Jesus. That wasn't his purpose at all but rather to present several unique and important and distinct features about Christ that he wanted us to know. And so each gospel writer then presents his own distinct portrait of Jesus, emphasizing certain key truths about him. And, and actually, you can, you can determine their unique message by the way they treat his coming into the world. For example, Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew's primary message is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the King of Israel. And you immediately see this as he opens his gospel account in a unique way. Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus as King. So Matthew 1.1, the very first words in the New Testament tell us this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, what Matthew is telling us right off the bat is that Jesus is the rightful king coming in the kingly line of David. He's the fulfillment of God's promise that one of David's sons would sit on his throne and rule over Israel. Also, in recording the actual birth of Jesus, Matthew tells us about wise men who came from the east. No other gospel account tells us this. Wise men came from the east, and who were they in search of? The king of the Jews. They didn't say Savior. They didn't say Lord. They said specifically king of the Jews. So, Matthew's emphasis in his gospel is on Jesus being the Messiah, the promised one, the king of Israel. However, we move then to Mark's gospel, and and though Mark's gospel contains many of the same events as Matthew's gospel, it's a much briefer gospel, it has, though, a different emphasis, a different emphasis. Mark presents Jesus as the perfect servant, the perfect servant. The key word in the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. 
Meaning Jesus did this and immediately he did that. It's an emphasis on his deeds as a servant. There's no mention in Mark's gospel of his royal genealogy. Nothing is said about his birth. Why? Because who's interested in the genealogy of a servant? Who's interested in the details of a servant's birth? The only thing that really matters about a servant is his service. And so Mark stresses the servanthood deeds of Jesus. In the third gospel account, Luke's gospel, the emphasis is on Jesus as the perfect man or the son of man. So when Luke gives us the genealogy of Christ, and he does give us a genealogy, his lineage is traced back not to the kingly line of David, Luke doesn't tell us that, but to the first man, to Adam, in order to show Christ's true manhood. So we read this in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Speaking of Christ, he's the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's where his genealogy leads us to. He's a real man. Because Jesus is a true man, Luke then gives us more details about his birth than any other gospel writer, stressing the human elements of a real baby born into a real world. And so we read Luke 2, 6 and 7, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We jump down to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for his purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now notice the things that Luke mentions about Jesus to convey the humanity of Christ. His actual birth, being wrapped in cloths, being placed in a manger, being given a name, his circumcision as a Hebrew male born under the law, being presented to the Father in the temple in Jerusalem. All of these things, folks, emphasize the humanity of Jesus, and that's exactly what Luke wants us to see. He is indeed true man. So if Matthew presents Jesus as king and Mark presents him as servant and Luke presents him as man, then what is John, the fourth gospel, what is John's unique message about Christ? John presents Jesus as God, as full deity, with the high point, the climax of the book, coming right at the end of chapter 20 with doubting Thomas saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And with John's message about Jesus focusing on his deity, when he, when John writes about Christ coming into the world, he doesn't record anything, as I said, about Christ's birth, but tells us instead about Christ's pre-existence as God before becoming a man. Once again, I want to read to you John chapter 1, but now just verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, these verses make it very clear that Jesus Christ is fully God, and that He existed for all of eternity, being in perfect and everlasting fellowship with God the Father. In fact, the way the Greek text literally reads when it says that the Word was with God is that they were facing each other. 
They were face to face, revealing that they were carrying on intelligent conversation and loving fellowship. And they did this for all of eternity. All of eternity they were doing this. You see, what John is telling us is that when the heavens and the earth were created, as we read in Genesis 1.1, the Word, meaning Jesus, who is called the Word because He expresses and reveals the mind of God to man, He already existed. In other words, He existed from all eternity. He has no beginning. He is no created being. This is exactly what Jesus claimed for Himself when He said in John 8.58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In saying these words, the Lord was claiming to be God, equating himself with the one who had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 as, I am who I am. And the Jewish people understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They didn't misunderstand him because the very next verse states that they tried to kill him for what they considered to be blasphemy, John 8.59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. But not only does John tell us that Christ existed before the creation of the universe because he's God, but John also tells us that Christ is the creator of the universe. He didn't only exist before creation, he is the creator. He says in verse 3 that all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, Jesus created everything. Nothing came into existence that wasn't created by him. So when we read in the early chapters of Genesis, the words, God said, let there be, and it was, that was Jesus Christ speaking because he is the one who created everything. And the rest of the New Testament affirms this glorious truth, this astounding truth. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ created all things, Paul tells us, and all things have been created to bring glory to him. Again in Hebrews 1-2 we read, In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, if your only picture of Jesus is that of a a weak little baby born in Bethlehem, then you've got to correct your thinking. Because as someone has said, that that little baby was God who created the materials out of which man constructed the whole town of Bethlehem. So in these opening verses of his gospel account, John makes it so very clear that Jesus Christ is the eternally pre-existent one, God, the creator of all things. And though he has always enjoyed perfect and intimate fellowship with the Father, being face to face with the Father in the most delightful communion possible, yet Jesus left the glories of his privileges that he had as God to become a man on earth. That's exactly what John tells us in that most remarkable statement found in verse 14. I didn't read it to you then, I read it to you now. John chapter 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, he dwelt among us, he tented among us, he, he tabernacled among us for a few years. 
John tells us that the word became flesh, which is another way of speaking of the incarnation, the enfleshment of Christ, God's final and complete word to mankind. While still maintaining his full deity, he took on human flesh, and he became, folks, he became one of us, yet without sin. You know, it's very easy in our familiarity with this verse and this truth and the whole Christmas message to view Christ's incarnation as only a doctrine of sound orthodoxy. But the incarnation should be more than a doctrine that we just know intellectually. It should be a truth that grabs hold of our hearts and moves us to worship Christ because as one Bible teacher put it, He said, Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us should be seen as, and I quote, a deed of incomprehensible love and infinite condescension. And the reason it should move us to worship him and to be seen as a deed of incomprehensible love is because he became a man solely for the purpose of dying on the cross for sinners like us, being judged in the place of sinners to save us from eternal wrath and judgment. The first and second stanzas of Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be, captures the glory of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It reads, and I won't sing it, but I'll read it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself and all for love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. See, Christ's birth and his coming into this world to die to save us, that is the most amazing expression of love ever. And you would think that when the people of his day, the people of Christ's day, you would think that when they saw him, when they heard him speak, when they heard him teach, when they viewed his his kind and selfless actions, when they witnessed his compassionate supernatural miracles, you would think that they would all recognize him as their Messiah, God, and would just fall down and worship him. But with the majority of people, that wasn't the case at all. And John tells us that wasn't the case because skipping ahead to verses 10 through 13, which I read to you earlier, he tells us how those who came in contact with Jesus, he tells us how they reacted to him. And that's what we want to look at this morning. It's a most practical study. It's a most relevant study because the way people responded and reacted to Christ coming into this world in the first century, that's the same way that people react and respond to Christ today. And in discovering these responses, we discover the real, true spirit of Christmas. Not Hallmark's version, but the biblical version of the real spirit of Christmas. And that response came and still comes in one of two categories. As people consider Jesus Christ, they either reject him or they receive him. No one is ever neutral about him. And so this morning, I want to begin by observing how the real spirit of Christmas is revealed by those who rejected Christ As I said a moment ago, it might be assumed that when the word was made flesh, when he appeared, that men would just come running to him. Finally, the Messiah has come. Finally, he's here and we adore him. But they didn't do that at all. Notice what John tells us in verse 10. He was in the world 
and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This is actually one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. I never read it without a deep sense of sorrow in my own heart, because it reveals that when the creator came into the world, the world that he created, the people he created, failed to recognize him. And the point isn't that they just failed to identify him as the creator, but that they didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't bow down. They didn't, they didn't worship him. They didn't fall before him in adoration. That's the point that John is making. Someone has put this sad scenario into perspective with these sobering words. They said, it was his world. He made it. For 33 years, Jesus tabernacled among men. He lived, he taught, he loved, he died. He bore man's sin. He bore man's judgment. All in his own world that he made with his own hands. The very hands that he had formed out of dust, picked up hammers and pounded nails back through their creator's hands. It was his world. He made it. They were his men. That was his tree, his hill, his world. He made it. He came to it and it didn't know him. Sad, sad. What John is telling us is that the creator, when he became a man, the world turned its back on him and said, who do you think you are? Listen, not only didn't they recognize him, they weren't even interested in recognizing him. They didn't care. The world didn't want him in its midst, so much so that they eventually had him executed. This is the real spirit of Christmas. A blind, self-centered world that doesn't want to be disturbed by any thought of acknowledging that God was in her midst and falling then on her knees in worship and adoration of him. They don't want that at all. Some years ago, a well-known Bible teacher was being interviewed by a young woman on a television program during the Christmas season. Now, this young woman was ignorant of spiritual truths, but because it was Christmas, she wanted to bring a religious tone to her program. So she began by saying how much the world today needs the spirit of Christmas, just as it was at the birth of Christ. She went on to speak of how the whole world of the first century waited eagerly for the coming of the baby Jesus. But folks, that's just not true. It's not true at all. And this Bible teacher who was being interviewed by this woman pointed that out to her, that the world of the first century wasn't interested at all in Christ's birth any more than people today are interested in Christ's birth. See, people today may say the words Merry Christmas, but they continue to go on their way merrily rejecting Christ. It's just words, empty words. They may sing songs about his birth. They may give gifts that are symbolic of the father giving the gift of his son, but they really don't care about Jesus. They didn't care when the creator was born into the world in the first century, and most people today don't care about that event either. So John tells us that Jesus, the creator, came to the world he created, and the world that he created didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't acknowledge him as their creator. They didn't fall down and worship him and adore him as their creator. In fact, they didn't even recognize him as their creator. They were just too busy with their own pursuits to give any serious thought to him. Not even a serious thought. And if you think that was sad, then the truth of verse 11 will break your heart because it says, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. 
As creator, Jesus came into the world for all men to see and respond to him. But to the Jewish people, his own chosen covenant people, his treasured inheritance, he came knocking at the door of their hearts for admission and acceptance. And the Bible says they did not receive him. Instead of welcoming him as their own Messiah, King, God, Lord, they drove him from their door and said, we don't want you. You see, when John tells us here in verse 11 that Jesus came to his own, he means that Jesus came to the people of Israel. The expression he came to his own means he he came home. He came to his own people. He came home to the people whom he had chosen and whom he had made a unique covenant with and who he had revealed himself to them through the scriptures. And he was also coming home to them in the sense that he was coming to them as a Jew to Jews, his kinsmen according to to the flesh, his own brethren, and declaring himself to be their promised Messiah. But they didn't welcome him. In fact, they turned him away in rejection. And you can see the evidence of this rejection at the highest level of Israel's leadership at the time. So that when the leader of the nation of Israel, Herod, when he hears about the Messiah, the, the king of the Jews, he's been born. When the, the magi, the wise men tell him, we've come, we followed the star from the east. We've come, where is the king of the Jews? When Herod hears about this, what does he do? He doesn't go to worship him. No, he sets out to try to murder him by killing all the male infants two years and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. And when the chief priests and scribes in Jerusalem, when they hear reports that wise men from the east have come to Bethlehem in search of their own Messiah and king, they don't even make an effort to travel five miles to Bethlehem. That's the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, about anywhere from three to five miles, depending where you are in Jerusalem. They don't even make an effort to say, we have to go see this. Not at all. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah predicted would be the reaction of the majority of the Jewish people. Isaiah chapter 53, verses one through three, read this way. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So why did Israel react this way to Jesus? Why didn't the nation receive her long-awaited Messiah? Why did the Jewish people reject Jesus? Well, it certainly wasn't because they lacked knowledge of him. They had all of the messianic prophecies of him spelled out his coming, spelled out for them in the scriptures. It wasn't because of a lack of knowledge. It certainly wasn't because they didn't see his miracles, which authenticated his claim to be Messiah. Those supernatural miracles, they saw it. It certainly wasn't because they didn't hear any credible witnesses testifying as to who Christ was. In fact, they had the best and the most credible witness any generation has ever had. You know who they had? They had John the Baptist, the man who Jesus said that he was the greatest man born of woman. They had the greatest man in their midst pointing them to 
Christ. And they still rejected him. Here's what John chapter 1, 6 and 7 say. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. So in spite of having John the Baptist testifying that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, the vast majority of the Jewish people of that day rejected him. And the reason that the vast majority of Jewish people did not receive back then, folks, it's the same reason people don't receive him today. The reason, they don't want to. They don't want to. They're not interested. Most people did not receive Christ in the first century, and most people don't receive him now because they simply don't want to receive him. And they don't want to receive him. Why? Well, Jesus spelled it out so plainly in John chapter 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment, Jesus said, that the light has come into the world. He's the light. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus is the light that came into the world, but those who saw him hated him. They hated him because they were walking in the darkness of their own sins and they didn't want the light exposing what they were and what they were doing. And so they rejected Christ, making up all kinds of flimsy excuses for their rejection. But the real reason that they rejected him is because they didn't want their evil deeds exposed. Folks, that's the reason that individuals reject Christ today. It's the same reason. Human nature never changes. They don't want Christ to reveal how dirty and vile their lives really are. And so they shun the light because they truly love the darkness that they walk in. They're spiritually blind. And therefore, they walk about in spiritual darkness. They don't want to see the truth. They don't want to have their lives changed. They aren't interested in repenting of their sin. They're not interested in walking in newness of life. They don't want to turn from their sin. They are very comfortable in their sin. See, the Bible teaches that all of us are born into this world spiritually dead. We're not sick. We're spiritually dead so that we have absolutely no interest and no response in a true heartfelt obedience to Christ and the message of salvation. But in addition, our willful unbelief has brought upon us the judgment of God in the form of Satan blinding us to the light of the gospel and therefore we walk in double darkness. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, meaning unsaved, non-Christians, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when a person does not turn to Christ for salvation, he may make all kinds of excuses for his unbelief, but the truth is that he continues to reject Christ because he's blind and he just loves being blind. He loves the darkness of his sin. He doesn't want Christ to change anything in his life. Years ago, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, writing about the problem of a man's spiritual blindness and the darkness that he walks in, he wrote these words. He said, when man fell into sin, he means in the Garden of Eden, he fell all the way to the bottom and there he lies hopelessly lost, blind to all spiritual truth and unable to help himself until God reaches down by grace, lifts him up, sets him on edge and then says, now this is the way, walk in it. 
This is the true picture of man's spiritual inability or blindness. And it is as a result of such blindness as well as man's willfulness that the Lord Jesus was unrecognized. See, this is why the ministry of John the Baptist was so very significant. The light was here in the world, Christ, and John was testifying to the light. He was pointing men and women away from himself, away from himself to the light of God, Jesus himself. But here's an important question. Here's a a critical question concerning all this. Why would you need anyone to point out light to you? You see, when you're in a dark room and light shines from a flashlight, or these days are iPhones, nobody needs to point that out. Nobody needs to say, oh, there's the light. It's just obvious. The only person to whom light isn't obvious is a blind person. That's why the Jewish people heard the very clear witness of John the Baptist. Couldn't be clear. He couldn't have a better witness than John. But so few responded. It's because they were blind and could not see the light amongst them. Listen, people today, as I said, they're just as blind as the Jewish people of Christ's day. And the proof of our blindness today is that like them, we, we also have the prophecies in Scripture. They're not going anywhere. They're still there. And they tell us, the Old Testament tells us how to identify the Messiah. And like them, we can see Christ's miracles by reading about those miracles in the New Testament. And like them, we have many witnesses pointing us to Christ as the light who reveals God. And why don't we run to the light for salvation? It's because, as I said, we prefer to remain in darkness and not have our sins exposed. Like the Jewish people of Christ's day, we too are very comfortable in our sins. Folks, that's the real spirit of Christmas. That's it. The creator, the light of the world appeared in our sin-darkened world and the world said we prefer to remain in darkness. But please, don't ever feel sorry for Jesus. Don't think, poor, poor Jesus, what a shame. He came to earth, presented himself, and people weren't interested. Don't have pity on him. That's not the whole picture. Not at all. The true biblical spirit of Christmas reveals that there was another response to Christ. Though the vast majority of people, yes, they rejected him. The real Christmas spirit is also seen in the fact that though most rejected him, number two, some received him. Some received him. Verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John reveals that although most people in Christ's day did not receive him, he tells us very clearly some did. So the question we're faced with is, what does it mean then to receive Christ? We read these words, what what does it mean? We often speak of receiving Christ. What does it mean? It's a vitally important question to ask and to have answered because our entire eternal destiny depends on receiving Christ. Since John said that only those who received him were given the right to become children of God. So, what does it mean to receive Christ? Well, essentially, the Greek word, and I refer to the Greek word because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Greek word that's translated receive means to welcome someone. It means to take someone to your side in affection, commitment, and love. It's the very same word that Jesus used in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, to describe him taking us home to be with him at what is known commonly as the rapture of the church or the snatching away of the church just prior to the start of the seven-year tribulation period. 
Listen to what Jesus said. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and watch this, and receive you. Receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, when Jesus takes his followers home to heaven at the rapture, he says that he will receive us, meaning that he'll welcome us home with genuine affection, genuine love, genuine care. So for us then to receive Christ, it's the same thing in reverse. To receive him is to personally welcome him into your life with commitment and love and affection. That's what it means. But how do you do this? Because Jesus is no longer physically walking around as he did in Israel in the first century. He ascended. He returned to the Father in heaven. Well, John tells us how to receive Christ in the very last phrase of verse 12. Even to those who believe in his name. John says that to receive Christ is to believe in his name. But listen closely. Because to believe in Christ is not simply a general belief in his existence or an intellectual acknowledgement that yes, Jesus was a real historical figure. I believe that. You see, the biblical word for belief means to trust. It means to trust with an attitude of submission and allegiance, loyalty, commitment, devotion. This is why John put it the way he did. Notice, look at the text again. Notice that John didn't simply speak of belief in Christ, but notice what else he said. He said, belief in his name. Belief in his name, that's very significant. Because when the Bible refers to Christ's name, it isn't referring to what we call him, like our proper names. No, not at all. It's a reference to who he is. His name speaks of his character, his attributes. So to receive Christ, you must place your trust in him, watch this, for who he is, who the Bible presents him to be. And who does the Bible present him to be in the context of salvation? Deity, Lord, Savior. To believe in Christ's name then, folks, it means to trust him as God who became man so that he could save you by being punished on the cross as a substitute for sinners who deserve God's wrath and judgment. In other words, to believe in Christ is to receive him into your life by trusting him to be your Lord as well as your personal Savior from sin. And when an individual does this, when they receive Christ by trusting him as their Lord and Savior, something wonderful happens to them. Look again at verse 12. Look at it in its entirety. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Contrary to what many people think, no one is born a child of God. God is not the personal father of everyone. The right to become a child of God is only given to you by Jesus Christ when you receive him by faith in his name. There's no entitlement here. Jesus must give you permission Authority, the right to become a child of God. So if that's the case, then why don't more people come to faith in Christ and become children of God? Well, the reason, as I've already stated, is that we're all born into this world dead in our sins and trespasses. We're blind and we're quite content to remain that way. We like that. 
Therefore, the only way that any of us can come to Christ for salvation is for God to take away our blindness so that we recognize who Jesus Christ really is. And then he gives us a brand new nature, a new disposition that inclines our hearts towards obeying him so that we want, we desire to receive him into our lives as our Lord and Savior. That's how it works. And that's exactly what God does in the lives of those who come to believe in Christ's name. Those who enter that special relationship with God as his children, as we read in the very next verse, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now John says that in the days that Jesus walked on this earth, those who received him by believing in his name, they experienced a birth, which he expresses as those who were born. Now obviously this can't be referring to physically being born because those who received him back then, they were already born. They were living in Israel at the time of Jesus and they came to believe in him. So it must refer then to a spiritual birth, a being born again, which means having God's life, his eternal life within you so that you're no longer spiritually dead in your sins. See, the kind of birth that John is writing about here is what the New Testament calls the new birth. It's the kind of birth that Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, when he said to him in John 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. You must be born again. There's no other option. So what's the source of this new birth? Well, going back to verse 13, notice what else John says about this new birth. First, he states what the source of this new birth is not. He says, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. John says the new birth is not of blood, which means it has nothing to do with who your family is, your bloodline. Even those born of what we would call noble blood cannot become children of God because of who they're descended from. This was the problem with the Jewish people of Christ. Day. They thought that they were assured of heaven because Abraham, they said, was their father. But this new birth isn't a result of your family ancestry. Secondly, John says that the new birth is not of the will of the flesh, meaning that you can't become a child of God simply because, well, I want to. I desire it. Lots of people want to go to heaven when they die. Lots of people want to have their sins forgiven. But it just it doesn't happen because you just want to, because the flesh wants it. In other words, heaven isn't obtained by simply willing it to happen. I want it to happen, so it's going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Third, John says that the new birth is not of the will of man, which is his way of saying that no one can be saved by any man-made religious system. It doesn't matter how devout you are, how religious you are, how many times you go to church during the year, it will never cause you to be born again. And thus, it will never get you into heaven. Now, with these three negatives, John is simply stating that being born again is never accomplished by anything that we do, meaning we don't have the ability to give ourselves a brand new nature with a disposition of affection towards God. We don't have the ability to take away the spiritual blindness that prevents us from seeing the truth about God. We don't have that. However, the last phrase of verse 13 reveals the true source of the new birth who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
but of God. What John is telling us is those who have a relationship with God as one of his children have this relationship because of the will of God. Because he sovereignly chose to open your eyes and hearts to Christ and give you spiritual life. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy, watch this, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again. He is the source of the new birth. James 1.18 In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The expression he brought us forth, that's the same thing as being born again. It is the sovereign work of almighty God whereby as we are exposed to the word of God, he implants his new life within us and as a result, we repent of our sin, we put our trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the question we're faced with this morning this Christmas, almost Christmas morning, is what category of the spirit of Christmas do you fit in? Have you rejected Christ? Like most people who encountered Jesus during the days that he he walked on earth, in a size of an audience this large, there has to be some people who have never trusted Christ. Being on live stream, there has to be some people who have never yet trusted Christ. If you're in that category, let this be the day of your salvation. Don't delay. Don't delay in trusting him. You may not have another opportunity. You may not hear the gospel again. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And if you have been born again, if you have trusted Christ, then I urge you to focus on Christ, to adore him, to not get so caught up in the season that you forget the one who makes the season so special. If you've never trusted Christ, I urge you, welcome Jesus Christ into your life. If you'd like to speak to somebody, one of our pastors about this, we're going to close the service. But I just want you to know, I invite you, I encourage you, once the service is closed, come up to the front. There'll be some of our pastors standing here. If you'd like to speak to one of them about you receiving Christ, then I urge you, to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we could gather on a morning like this for such an occasion as this to remember, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world. How lonely it must have been for you. No wonder the Bible says you were a man of of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Not only were our sins laid upon you, but you faced such rejection from those you loved those who were your kinsmen according to the flesh, those who, even one of your apostles, was an unbeliever, Judas, and yet you loved and you cared and you showed concern and they rejected you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has up to this point rejected Christ, that you'll work in their hearts, draw them to yourself, show them their need for Christ and put that unrest in them that their sins will grieve them, that they'll want salvation, that they'll want a savior, that they'll want you to be the new Lord of their lives instead of themselves. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that this is a time where we can refocus on Christ because we've received him and may our love deepen for him 
And may we praise him and may we adore him and may we be grateful for the salvation we have in Christ to know that if we died today, we would go to heaven, not because of anything we've done, but only because Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that what we've heard today will be lodged in our hearts and resonate in our lives. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.